Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. Isaiah 52, verse 13. We don't have page numbers these days, do we? So, if you turn to the middle of your Bible, you're probably in Psalms. And if you go forward rapidly, you will hit Isaiah fairly soon. Isaiah 52, verse 13. I'm going to read a slightly alternative translation that might be in your footnote if you've got a Bible like mine. See, my servant will prosper. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. It's about Jesus. He will prosper. He will be raised. He will be highly exalted. But he doesn't look like that now. No. Jesus? Oh, A weak-looking, strange-looking man in stained-glass windows, in dusty old churches, where a handful of people who are on the wrong side of history meet together. Jesus, a man most people never talk about, unless it's to say, for Christ's sake, when something's gone wrong. In other words, use his name as a swear word. Because they don't even think he's a real person, let alone someone of honour and dignity. Jesus, a man whose teachings are seen as out of order. Teaching about hell and sexual immorality and there only being one way to be saved. What bigotry. In other words, verse 14, many are appalled at him. Appalled at him. They see nothing desirable in him. But verse 15, he will sprinkle many nations. He will cleanse the sins of many. And a time will come when, verse 15, kings will shut their mouths because of him. There aren't many kings around these days, but we still have influencers and elites. And whether they're in Silicon Valley on the west coast of America or on the east coast of China, whether they're in Washington or Westminster, they generally despise Jesus. But a time is coming when they will see him. And then their arrogant attitude to him will be silenced. That was Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 15 that I've just run through there. And it introduces the themes of the servant song. Isaiah 52, verse 13 through to the end of chapter 53 is a song about God's servant. And its themes are introduced in the verses we've just run through. One of them is the first word of the song. Do you notice the first word of the song? See. There in verse 13, see. What do you see in Jesus? That's a theme of this song. How does he appear to you? So let's see Jesus by going through Isaiah 53 in four sections. And then when we've done that, we'll end with how we should respond to what we've seen of him. The theme is the servant who looks weak, but he will be exalted because in his weakness, he was taking the sins of many. Dealing with that big human problem of sin. There's the theme, the servant who looks weak, but he will be exalted because his weakness was actually taking others' sins. Let's see Jesus now by going through this great song. We've just gone through the introduction. So now we move into chapter 53 and we begin with pathetic Jesus. 
verses 1 to 3. Now, the chapters before have told about something great God is going to do. He's going to act with power, and it's described as the arm of the Lord. God's strong arm that's going to do something amazing. The arm of the Lord. What would the arm of the Lord be like? Verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Notice again the theme of seeing. Has it been revealed to you? But, verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot. This is strange. The arm of the Lord turns out to be a person. He grew up. And he's a person who grew up like a tender shoot. What does this mean? Children, do you ever go walking in Outwoods or maybe the Bluebell Woods? And it's springtime now. It's lovely, isn't it? Lovely day. Looking forward to singing outside in that sunshine. And you go on a spring day and you'll see little green shoots growing in the ground. What are they? Maybe some will turn into bluebells. Others, I don't know what they'll be. But a little green shoot, what's it like? Well, it's pretty weak, isn't it? It doesn't look anything special. What will happen if you tread on it? It will break. Because it's not a mighty oak tree, it's just a little weak green shoot. But this little green shoot wasn't growing in the outwards. No. Verse 2. And like a root out of dry ground, it was in the dusty, dry ground of the Middle East. That's where this was written. The Middle East. Oh, that makes it very vulnerable. That makes it very likely to wither up and die. And that was Jesus. A vulnerable baby, almost killed by Herod, growing up looking so weak and small. And just an ordinary looking little boy, growing up in Nazareth. That was dry ground. That was an unpromising start. No prophet ever came from Nazareth. Well, he looked more impressive once he's grown up and become an adult. Well, verse 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Forget the religious pictures of him, although personally I don't think they do look very attractive, look pretty pathetic. But forget them. Just another poor, careworn looking man from a poor town. You could see on his hand he'd spent years working as a carpenter, just scraping a living. Until he ended up looking... Well, let's jump backwards into verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, it's saying his suffering left him more damaged than any person had been, and his suffering prompted the question as you looked at that corpse, was this even a human So marked by suffering. And so verse 3, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. They look away. I can't even stand the sight of him. I was travelling in a train once and the train stopped in the middle of nowhere. We sat there for a while. I didn't know why we stopped here. Then I looked out of the window and next to me there was the body of a man next to the railway line. Mangled. I presumed he'd been hit by the train and part of his face torn off and uh, I looked away as soon as I could. It sickened me and hoped the train would move on quickly. 
That was Jesus. I don't mean that was Jesus, of course. I mean, that's what Jesus was like. If you were there at the cross, you'd want to turn away. There'd be nothing to attract you. That's what you would see. If you go by appearances, he's pathetic, Jesus. But instead, we need, remember verse 1, God to reveal the arm of the Lord to us. And he does that in verses 4 to 6. So let's move on now to purposeful Jesus, verses 4 to 6. Verse 4, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. We considered, notice, we looked, and what we saw, we thought, here's someone God's against. Here's someone who's coming to a bad end. But, notice verse 5, but, but, here's the purpose behind it, that we would never know if God hadn't revealed it. He's got to show it to us. And the key verse for this is verse 6. But first of all, I want you to pretend you don't know verse 6. Just for a moment, pretend you don't know verse 6. And first, I want to tell you about a piece of music. It's called Handel's Messiah. Handel. Was he George Frederick Handel? Something like that. He wrote a piece of music putting the parts of the Bible to music. Called the Messiah because it was about the story of the Messiah, God's promised king. And you get to a bit in it where the words are, all we like sheep have gone astray. And it's brilliant. The music, well, it dances around like sheep. Children, have you seen any spring lambs? I saw my first yesterday in the field. Little spring lambs in the, well, it wasn't sunshine yesterday, but there they were in the field. And they skip around all over the place. And in this piece of music, the music skips around all over the place. Can you imagine the sheep? And off they wander wherever they want to go. And then you get a shock because the music suddenly changes. And it goes so slow and solemn as the words change to And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The music emphasises what a shock this should be. What a surprise it should be. The Lord's laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now that also tells us we are not fun and lively lambs just skipping around the field. It tells us we are obstinate sheep refusing to follow the shepherd left to ourselves because we have iniquity. That's an unusual word. What does iniquity mean? It means twistedness. It means our character has got twisted. It also means bias. Iniquity means having a bias. Children, do you ever go ten-pin bowling? Ten-pin bowling, you have that great big heavy ball, and you roll it, don't you, straight down the middle of the of the bowling alley, straight at those skittles or pins. And there it is, it's going straight, isn't it, for the middle one, except it doesn't. Oh, it never stays straight, it always goes off to the side. Off to the side, it's got a bias in it, so it won't go straight, and that's us. We've got this bias away from God's way. We won't go straight his way. We're always biased to going off to sin. Off to our way. And our way is the way God says not to go. That's iniquity. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Think of that. I wonder what you're thinking of now. 
Maybe you think of your pride. And it was all laid on him. Or maybe you think of every time you've prayed as if God was a nobody, as if he didn't really matter. So if you were talking to someone unimportant, how offensive, but it was all laid on him. Or maybe you think of sexual sin, whether in your mind or in your body, all laid on him. All your lies, all laid on him. All your failing to honour Jesus, not thinking much of him, how ironically laid on him. All of your acting as if, Living for God's honour, that's an annoyance that gets in the way of what I really want to do. Laid on him. Christian brothers and sisters, what sins trouble you? What sins can you think of that you groan over? Name them to yourselves now. And whatever it was, it was laid on him. And what did that do? What did that result in? Verse 5. It resulted in he was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. Uh, Yes, you know, I expect he was pierced in his head and in his hands and in his feet and in his side. But behind that, his heart was pierced. Because we read, he was stricken by God. The father he'd always loved and had always loved him was now pouring out his anger on him. What did it mean to have your sin laid on him? Verse 5, it meant he was crushed. Oh yes, his lungs were crushed. When he got to that point, when he was just so drained with blood, drained of blood, he was too weak to, to pull himself up and get another breath. But behind that, his soul was crushed. As the pure one took on himself all of our impurity. As the lawgiver took on himself all our lawlessness. Piercing for him meant peace for us. It's put so exactly and clearly here in verse 5. How anyone can question whether Jesus really was there taking our punishment, I don't know. Because it's, it's so clear here. By his wounds, we are healed. By his piercing, we have peace. Such an exact swap. By his punishment, we have peace. The peace of knowing our sins are forgiven. The peace of knowing those sins you thought of that trouble you, they don't count against you. The peace of knowing I have nothing to fear when I go to answer God, I'll get a welcome. The welcome of a child of God. Or to put it in the words of a hymn, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. If you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting the Lord Jesus, isn't this good news? Isn't this a good God? Isn't this amazing love? And it's offered to you now. Jesus welcomes you to himself. He welcomes you to come and have this peace. He says, put your trust in me. Stop being an obstinate sheep that goes off and says, I'll do my own thing. And come and follow the shepherd. He's such a good shepherd. Turn to his way. Will you? There's a welcome for you. 
There's peace there ready and waiting for you. He's a loving saviour. But maybe you don't because you're still going by what you see. And if you go by what you see, if you just look at the events, what do you see? Well, next we have, thirdly, passive Jesus. Verses 7 to 9. Let's move on to verses 7 to 9 and find passive Jesus. Now, when the Bible was written, of course, they didn't have highlighters and they didn't have caps lock on a computer. So when they wanted to emphasise something, often it was by repeating it. So look for a repeated phrase in verses 7 to 9. He was pierced, sorry, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had not, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Did you notice the repeated phrase? He was, he was. It keeps saying he was. In other words, these things are being done to him. It makes him sound passive. Far from in control. Others are in control doing things to him. He was. He appears to be just a tragic victim. Led like a lamb to the slaughter. He looks like a passive victim of injustice. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment is a slightly strange phrase. Hard to work out. Probably means there's a lack of proper judgment. He's oppressed by injustice. To Kill a Mockingbird's a great book and great film as well. And it tells the story of a man who's accused of a horrible attack on a woman. And he's put on trial. And in the trial, it's proven that he didn't do it. And in fact, he couldn't have done it. And away go the jury to consider the evidence. And back they come and they rule him guilty. It's been proved that he couldn't have done it, but they rule him guilty. Because of the colour of his skin, they just want to find him guilty. It's enraging. Injustice is enraging. Makes your blood boil. And that's what Jesus went through. Injustice. A show trial. Where there was no weighing of the evidence, just making up accusations. There was no one to speak in defence, just a load of people attacking. There was a judge who said, I can't find that he's done anything wrong. And the people shout, crucify. And he says, why? And they just shout back, crucify. How enraging. It makes you want to shout. But Jesus, verse 7, as a sheep before her shearers, was silent until he became the victim of death. Verse 8, he was cut off. From the land of the living. Verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. If you go by appearances. You think. Here's just another tragic victim of injustice. But if you go by what God reveals. You discover. Here's the last section. Prosperous Jesus. 
Let's move now into the end of the song, verses 10 to 12. Prosperous Jesus. Now we find he wasn't just a passive victim. What was going on? Verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him. It wasn't just Jesus under the control of wicked men. No, it was all the Lord's will. In fact, verse 12, he poured out his life unto death. He was in control. He was doing it to bring us peace. And that purpose, taking our sins to bring us peace, it will prosper. Verse 10, do you notice at the end of verse 10? And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. It's how I think the song started. Back in chapter 52, verse 13, I think the footnote, if you've got a Bible like mine, is right. See, my servant will prosper. His work will prosper. And I'll show you this prospering this way. Verse 8 says, he was cut off. Sorry. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? He was a Jewish young man, youngish man. And he faced the ultimate Jewish tragedy. Dying young, in disgrace, with no descendants. Remember, these were a people who were promised their descendants would be blessed. And he dies young, in disgrace, with no descendants. But you get to verse 10 and you find what? He is alive and he's honoured and he will see his offspring. He's going to have descendants. How's that? Jesus was never married and he was killed before he could have any children. How will he see his offspring? Well, look for another repeated word in this song. There's another word that keeps cropping up. It's the word many. Back in verse 14 in chapter 52, many were appalled at him. Many went by what they saw. Here's a failure and, a, and an appalling one. But, verse 15, he will sprinkle many nations. It's referring back to the Jewish sacrifices, sprinkling with blood, cleansing from sin. How will he do that? Verse 12, the very end of the song, he bore the sin of many. The sin of many was laid on him. And because of that, verse 11, he will justify many. He will have them declared right and welcomed by God. Therefore, verse 12, therefore I will make the many his portion. I think that's a better translation. The word great is the same word as many. And it isn't saying Jesus is just one of many great people. It is... I will make the many his portion. I'm going to give him many people. Not Jesus is just one of many great people, but I'm going to give him many people. Because he's taken the sins of many. The Bible elsewhere tells us Jesus was going to be given a people. He says, here am I and the children God's given me, my offspring, my descendants. He's got descendants. Not despite dying young, but because of dying young. He's got many people who belong to him. Some of us were hearing in a prayer meeting recently about, um, well, children, what's the biggest desert in the world? Do you know? It's the Sahara. And we were hearing about in the Sahara Desert of all places, in a country called Niger, Muslims turning to the Lord Jesus. And mosques being turned into churches. Amazing. 
And we heard in another prayer meeting about in Ethiopia, more Muslims turning to Jesus and being so enthusiastic to spread his good news. And people are burning down their churches, but they're still spreading the good news. And we've heard in the past from Andy Ball about in the Ukraine, soldiers, tough, fighting men being humbled and seeing they need Jesus as their saviour. And in China, the authorities, the sort of people we read about in Isaiah 52, well, they despise Jesus. But they can't stop tens of millions of people who today in China will be saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. No one of those people I've just mentioned will look great, but put them together and Jesus has many, many, many people. For, verse 12, he bore the sin of many. What are we supposed to do about this? Well, why is it here in Isaiah? It's a very famous chapter, but I suspect far fewer people than read Isaiah 53 notice what's around it and why it's here. Why is it here? It's in the middle of a section to the church, to God's people. By the way, don't try to separate Jesus and his church. I want Jesus, but not his church. It doesn't work. It's here because the church is told the arm of the Lord will do something great. And chapter 53 has told us what this arm of the Lord is. It's Jesus. And chapter 53 has told us the great thing he'll do. He'll take the sins of many. And he'll have many people for himself. The servant who looked weak will be exalted because he bore the sin of many. And so either side of chapter 53 is what we're supposed to do. To see the response, look either side. And so chapter 52 verse 1 tells us, 52 verse 1, Awake, awake, O Zion. That's the church, Zion. Verse 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's saying, wake up, church. Wake up. We've got good news. We've got joyful news. Now let's spread it. And then on the other side of Isaiah 53, chapter 54, verse 1 says, sing, O barren woman. What in the Bible is pictured as a woman? Oh, it's the church again. Pictured as a woman and... The church sometimes looks barren, looks weak and doesn't get many children. In other words, many people turning to Jesus. But who is the church's husband? Oh, it's Jesus. And he has taken the sins of many and he will have many children. So sing, we're told, verse chapter 54, sing for joy. Verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out your tent curtains wide. In other words, expect God to grow you. Don't judge by appearances. Don't be discouraged by how things look. Don't have your expectations set by what others see in Jesus. Awake, sing, let's get active, let's be joyful, let's spread the good news. That's what this is here for. There was once a shoemaker in Northamptonshire and he became a missionary, did great things in India, translating the Bible into many languages, spreading the gospel, an amazing work. His name was William Carey. And probably the most famous sermon that he preached was on these chapters, 52 to 54 of Isaiah. 
And he said, Jesus took the sin of many. And so Jesus will have many children. And so we are to stretch out our tent, spread the good news, have high expectations. Awake, awake, O Zion, sing, O barren woman. And he summarized it all in this little phrase. He said, it's all about this. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God.